much, Amanda, for that beautiful prayer. And good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, do keep your Bible open at Exodus chapter 20, although I think we may have already learned the, fourth com- the sixth commandment as it only has four words. My family is still on holiday today, and uh, they're hopefully watching this service from Spain. And I told them that I was going to greet them with a secret signal. So I'm just going to do that now. And hi to everyone else who couldn't be here in person. Now, um, in our Sunday morning series, uh, this teaching this term, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and we're finding that they're actually much more than just a, a group of commands. They're actually a key to life. Now, interestingly, the Bible itself doesn't refer to these ten principles as the Ten Commandments. It calls them the Ten Words. The Ten Words, and that's in many ways better, because they're not just blunt instructions, they are principles for life. And what we're finding is that as you, uh, you click on one of the commandments or one of the words, it's a bit like a click-down menu on a website where there's a drop-down box and it reveals much more about what's going on underneath it. And as we reflect on each word, this happens richly. And if you didn't, uh, weren't here last week, I was on holiday, uh, uh, you missed an absolute feast from Andrew Smith on the the word to honour our father and mother that it may go well with us. So I would encourage you to follow that up. See, in these 10 words, Moses uh, is giving God's people a blueprint of what it means to be fully human. And it's coming from the Lord himself, the maker of life. To follow these words is to choose life. So they were the kind of founding document of the nation of Israel, a bit like the Magna Carta for us or for our American friends, the Declaration of Independence. To live them out would have made the Israelites a light to the world. A nation of recently freed slaves had the potential to live as the people of God, which meant as a whole new creation. Bless you. So to experience joy and to live in justice and feel hope and have peace And in living a world of love, the things that everybody wants, no matter who you are, we now seek to understand and apply these ancient words to our lives in South London in the first part of the 21st century. And here it is, the sixth word. You shall not murder. Just four little words. And in the original language, the Hebrew language, it was actually just two little words. You shall not murder. How much can be said about it? On the face of it, we could be in for an early lunch. Don't worry, I've thought of some things to say. (laughs) Remember, we're going deeper. I want to ask three questions today, three questions of this text. Firstly, what does it mean? Secondly, have you murdered anyone recently? Graham already asked that, don't put your hand up. And thirdly, what can we do about it? Firstly, what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean by... Murder, you shall not murder. It's actually not the most common word, the most common verb for killing in the Bible. Uh, It's, for example, this is the word, not the word that's used for killing in war, the kind of killing that soldiers might have to do. It's only also used of killing of persons, not of animals. So this word is not forbidding the taking of animal life. Israelites were commanded to sacrifice some animals to God as part of their worship. 
and they were allowed to eat meat as part of their diet. So while the Bible does teach that we should care for animals, we should treat them humanely, we should be good stewards of the creation that we've been given charge of, it is legitimate, according to the Bible, to take animal life. Also, this verb murder is not the word that's, that's used of killing done by the state in wartime. There were times, there was one time in Israel's history when they were to, told to engage in a very specific war for a period called the conquest. That was a specific time in history. They didn't go around doing that all the time. It was a specific uh, episode. Uh, but they were allowed to bear arms as a nation if they were attacked by other countries, which happened all too often. And the Old Testament law also allowed for some legislation for capital punishment. For example, in the event of murder, the, 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 the death penalty was applied. So the state could take life under certain very limited circumstances in a just war or with certain crimes. So the Sixth Commandment doesn't forbid the legitimate taking of life by the state, but it is talking about murder. That is, the premeditated, unlawful killing of another human being. That's murder. And it's also the word used of manslaughter, which is the unlawful killing of somebody without premeditation, without malice, a forethought. The same word is used in Deuteronomy chapter 4 of the killer who, quote, killed his neighbor unintentionally. That's the, uh, here's a, a, a modern translation called the New English Translation, the Net Bible, very useful Bible. Moses selected three cities in the Transjordan region toward the east. Anyone who had accidentally killed another without hating him at the time of the accident could flee to one of those cities and be safe. So there was some provision, actually, for a genuine uh, accidental death to seek refuge and mercy. So what is the Sixth Commandment saying? It's permanently forbidding all unauthorized taking of human life by human individuals or groups, either deliberately or by negligence. You shall not do it. But every negative command has an implied positive. Every coin with a head has a tail. The flip side of you shall not murder is this. The flip side is you shall respect and protect and cherish life. That's a really natural implication, isn't it? To keep the commandment properly, we have to think about how we're going to guard life and promote life and protect life as well as abstain from taking it. And God's people should be careful to observe that as well. So we're going to think of some implications now. We need to touch on a few issues that are quite complex. And I recognize their complexity and we don't have time to unpack all the details today. But let's get some issues out on the table and try and state the principle. First thing is that human beings are at their most vulnerable at the beginning of life, which is in the womb. Life begins at conception, according to the Bible. So to take this word seriously would mean that Christians avoid, carefully avoid methods of contraception that take effect after life has begun. So if there's any doubt, friends, that your method of contraception is taking a life after it has begun, it would be best to change that. 
Another implication is that the life of an unborn baby ought to be protected as much as a born baby. The legalizing of abortion in this country and many others has led to situations where in one room of a hospital, doctors are fighting to save the life of a premature baby, and it's amazing what they do. And in another room of the same hospital, another baby at the same term is being quietly terminated. Now that should never have been allowed. But uh, statistics suggest that this year, 25% of pregnancies in South London will be terminated. According to the biblical value of human life, abortion is not justifiable except in certain rare situations of medical emergency. Now, of course, a lot more could be said about this, but not today. The main force of this command is that we should not take life except we're authorized. Now, another implication, it's a sensitive one, but we want to say it, is the taking of your own life. Friends, this is sensitive ground here. Let me say this with tenderness. Your life belongs to God. He gave it to you. He owns it. And it is of immense value, much more than you know, even if you don't feel it. It is not yours to take. However bad you may feel, however dark the darkness, your life is sacred. It is precious in the sight of God, whatever you might feel about it. You shall not murder yourself. Now there are other implications in our society a moral consensus that was founded on the Bible is eroding. So, so, so the idea that human life is precious is gradually being eroded. You see this more and more. Some people now argue that the value of a human life should be based on its usefulness to society. Uh, one notorious uh, professor, uh, he was a professor of bioethics at Princeton University, a man called Peter Singer, wrote this. If we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, like a dog or a pig, we will often find that non-human to have superior capacities for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else that can plausibly be considered morally significant. And so he added, there's a lack of any clear boundary between a newborn infant, who's clearly not a person in the ethically relevant sense, and the young child who is. In our book, should the baby live, my colleague and I suggested a period of 28 days after birth might be allowed before an infant is accepted as having the same right to life as others. You see where it leads? Utilitarian principles, human value of life based on what it can contribute. The biblical command forbids all such calculations because it starts from a completely different place. It says every human life is sacred because the human beings were made by God in his image. Therefore, the elderly, the disabled, the medically dependent are worthy of ultimate dignity and value and care because of who they are, not because of what they can offer. Now, I know that those of you who work in the medical professions often face very tricky decisions. I know that life is rarely black and white. You have to deal with many shades of grey. We don't have time to explore nuances today, but we want to make the main point. 
Let us not allow special cases and very hard cases to take away from the main force of this command. We should never, ever take human life in an unauthorized way. And remember, this verb translated murder is also used in Deuteronomy 4 of the killer who killed his neighbor unintentionally, by accident. How does this happen? Because you didn't think carefully enough. And one big way this happens in our world is through driving. Uh, driving under the influence or dangerous driving. Cars make potential murderers of us all. Many years ago, a man was speeding on, I think it was the A3, because he was running late. He came over the top of a flyover at 60 miles an hour. Too late to see that over the flyover was actually a, trail, a traffic tailback that was stationary. And he plowed into the back of an estate car and it contained a young family. They were members of this church. Some of you will remember them. The wife and baby were killed. The husband was terribly burned because he tried to open the back door of the car, which was on fire, to pull his wife and child out. And he was so burned that he died a few days later in hospital from shocking burns. A, a single man, carelessly speeding because he wanted to get somewhere fast, killed a family. Didn't mean to do it. Just didn't think. Now look, if you drive differently because you see a police car in the road, do you think you ought to drive that way all the time because the Lord's eye is on you all the time? The one who gave life. Of course, people always say, I never meant to do it, but they didn't take adequate precautions against it. Scripture expressly forbids the unauthorized taking of life. And by implication, it requires us to do our utmost to protect life. That's what it means. That's what it means. Now, why does the Bible make such a big deal about the value of human life? It was certainly not something that was shared by the cultures around Israel, the other cultures in the ancient world. I've got here a collection of readings from the ancient Near East. You can borrow it if you have trouble sleeping. One of the most famous collections of laws from uh, that time period was called the code of the laws of Hammurabi. This is from uh, Mesopotamia. Here, I'll just give you an example of what other people in the world at that time thought about uh, life and about law. This is from a, a, a law code. Uh, if, if an Awilu, Awilu is a certain class of person. If an Awilu strikes a woman of the Awilu class and causes her to miscarry her fetus, he shall weigh and deliver 10 shekels of silver for her fetus. If that woman shall die, they shall kill his daughter. So that's an upper class or middle class person. But if he should cause a woman of the commoner class to miscarry her fetus by the beating, he shall weigh and deliver five shekels, five, half the price. And if that woman should die, he shall weigh and deliver 30 shekels of silver. That's the common person, but what about a slave? If he strikes an Awilu slave woman and thereby causes her to miscarry her fetus, he shall weigh and deliver two shekels of silver. And if that slave woman should die, he'll weigh and deliver 20 shekels. So the, the further down the social scale you were, the less valuable your life was. And it was enshrined in law. And there's none of that class nonsense in the Bible. Praise God.
You shall not murder, full stop. It doesn't matter who it is. Why was Israel so different? Because their understanding of what a human being is is so radically different. And actually our civilization in the West was built on this. We just don't realize we've climbed up a ladder and now people are kicking the ladder away. Genesis 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God bases the value of human life on the fact that we were made by him to be like him. Animals are creatures. We're created too. We're primates. But we are something much, much more. We are created persons, made to reflect the greatness of God in his world, made to rule it under him, given the capacities to do that, given a spiritual life that is eternal, made to fill the world and care for it. We don't get our measure of worth from each other. We don't get our measure of worth from the natural world. We get it from God. He gives life. He takes it away. It is not ours. So every human life is sacred, regardless of ability, IQ, ethnicity, age, quality of life calculations. Regardless of born, unborn, it is sacred. What does it mean? So, question, have you murdered anyone recently? Keep your hands down. You might be thinking, have I murdered anyone recently? You've got to be kidding. In fact, I'm quite pleased to find one of the Ten Commandments that I've actually kept. But you know by now we have to go deeper. We need to go deeper because Jesus, our Lord, opened this commandment up in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and shows us what it is really about. And Tom read it for us earlier. Jesus shows us that this brief little command, you shall not murder, and the positive flip side, cherish life, has huge implications through the whole of our lives. Here's here's what he says again in Matthew 5. You've heard it it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But listen, I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, rakar, I think that means idiot. Rakar is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave the gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then offer the gift. That's why when we fence the Lord's table later on, we often say, if you remember now that you have to put something right with another brother or sister, don't take the elements. Go and sort it, excuse me, and then take them next time. See, Jesus unpacks this with such depth and discernment. He says, let's take this to the logical conclusion, shall we? Where does anger begin? Sorry, where does murder begin? It begins with anger, because anger is murder in the heart. Anger is murder in the heart. And anger quickly finds verbal expression, doesn't it? It quickly boils over into language. Why does Jesus make such a big deal about the word fool? If you say to your brother or sister, fool. I mean, a fool is almost a comedy insult, I think. The only person I can think of who used the word fool for an insult was Mr. T in the A-team. Remember? Shut up, fool. Why is this important? 
Here's why. Because we use words to belittle people, to reduce them, to make them less than the image of God. If you can give someone a label, you can make them less than human. You can de- it makes it easier to dehumanize them. And this is what precedes murder. It kind of gives it some justification. Every brutal regime in history has developed a special vocabulary for the people that they wanted to get rid of, to clear the channels. They call them the uh, infidels or the undesirables. Or it's, it's, you know, history. I, I want to just say, I think one of the worst words in the English language has developed in the last 20 years or so. It's the word chav. If you dismiss someone as a chav, which is a term of class hatred, you have diminished their dignity as an image bearer. It is death by vocabulary. So, friends, Jesus says that out of the overflow of the, the Bible says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you are angry, what kind of words do you use? And what do those words say about other people? people you're angry with. Those words are doing a job for you. You see, if we let our anger go, it first of all comes out in the expression of our mouth, which is doing something to our view of another person. And if we continue with it, the anger can cool into something worse, which is bitterness, hatred, enmity, Resent, settled resentment. This is what Jesus is getting at there in Matthew 5.23. He says, remember, if you're offering your gift and someone's got something against you, go and reconcile with them. Because if we fail to deal with our anger, we could fall into a settled pattern of hatred and bitterness towards somebody. And that's toxic to your own soul. It's toxic to community. The New Testament speaks of what this can do in a church, a very sobering verse. And I've seen what, I've seen the, what happens when this was not obeyed. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Hebrews twelve fifteen. If somebody allows anger to go deep and, and will not let it go and, and it, it becomes in them a bitter root down in their heart, it doesn't just hurt them, it causes trouble and defiles many people and actually can split congregations of God's people. I'm serious. So let's ask again, have you murdered anyone recently because anger is murder in the heart? Anger. I think this should be hitting home now. Because at the deepest level, you know, we are all murderers. We're all murderous. I realized when I was preparing this sermon, I have indulged in road rage more than once. If I feel um, slighted by other drivers or or they've they've driven badly, it boils over and I mutter words about them that express something. I was talking about this commandment with a friend and he said, have you heard of trolley rage? (laughs) Trolley rage. Now, it was a new one on me, but I instantly knew what he was talking about. And here's here's a definition. Trolley rage is the common name 
for a heightened level of anger and frustration while in a supermarket. One man confessed that when he saw another dad disciplining his child at playgroup, he entertained a two-minute fantasy of cutting the man's throat. I've done that. I know what he means. C.S. Lewis wrote, It is hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about our neighbor's glory. The load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. Their life is to ours as to the life of a fly. But it is immortals whom we joke with, immortals we work with, immortals we marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Human beings, image of God. Do we feel the weight of our neighbor's glory? You see, properly understood, the sixth commandment is a charter for a whole new way of life in which we treat everyone as a VIP, as a king or a queen, royalty, because they're made in the image of the great king, the person with uh, mental illness, the neurodiverse person, the person with disability, the person with addiction, the person who's uh, stolen things, the person who seeks asylum, the person who is homeless, the offender, the rich person who is arrogant, the poor person who's idle. If this, we understand this commandment properly, it will transform everything about the way we relate because the way we drive, the way we respond to rudeness, it will make you a different person when you are served by somebody in a restaurant or you get on a bus if you're standing in a queue or you're at the post office. You see how it works? Cherishing life. What a beautiful way to live. One of the great treatments of the Ten Commandments was published in 1692 in England by a pastor called Thomas Watson. Watson asks, how many ways is murder committed? And he lists 12 ways. Here's four. We murder with the hand, obviously. We murder with the mind. He says, malice is mental murder. If you just look at, think about somebody hatefully. We murder with the tongue by speaking prejudice or gossip. We murder with the pen or the email. One uh, Christian writer, Ray Ortland, has recently said, email is the most brutal form of communication ever invented. I think he's right. But what about this? We murder by unmercifulness, by not helping someone who is ready to perish. You may be the death of another by not relieving him. If you don't feed the man who is starving, you kill him. How many of us thus are guilty of the breach of this commandment? Watson concludes that this command implies we should be so far from ruining other people that we should do all we can to preserve their lives. Have you murdered anyone recently? I sense the weight of that command now 
even as I sense more the weight of my neighbor's glory, of your glory. And I confess that I've fallen far short of keeping this commandment. So that leads to our final question, which I hope you are feeling to. What can we do about it? What can we do about it? In fact, at this point in the sermon, we might be feeling it's all a bit much. It's impossible. But I hope at the same time you're seeing a beautiful vision of a life where people are treated with great love and value, dignity, a world of love. But we're also thinking, how can I really change? And the answer I want to give us today is this. We, want, we need to go much deeper. We need to go much deeper. We, we sometimes in church, we're in danger, we kind of unintentionally give a slap on the wrist. Bad Christian. Go and try harder next week. That's not it. We need to go much deeper. The Bible talks about being made holy, which is a process called sanctification. Sanctified is being made holy and special. It also talks about another process, which the word is mortification, putting to death. So We're made holy by putting our sin to death, and we need to apply ourselves to that. Now, Putting sins to death is, is not just straightforward. It's not just a slap on the wrist. There are some things you can deal with quickly, actually. There is some biblical wisdom that is just quick, get out of there, stop it. Uh, the Apostle Paul in one place says, flee youthful lusts. Flee them. Just run. Run a mile. Another place he writes, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, try and deal with it diff- uh, quickly. Don't, don't dwell on it and, and, and simmer. And those are important words. But, you know, we are going to need to do more than that if we're going to grow into full maturity as humans, the likeness of Jesus. And not all anger can be dealt with quickly. You know, some people here may have been so deeply hurt and wronged by another person that it might take years to work that through. Years of tears and much help from other people walking with you. Forgiveness may be a long process. It's not always a quick fix. Let's take our spiritual lives seriously enough. Let me share some lessons that I've learned from two great doctors of the soul, two two teachers. One was called Dr. Timothy Keller, who passed away earlier this year. Keller advised us to search for the sin underneath the sin. I was once at a conference where he spoke. He was quite a private man, but unusually he spoke very um, candidly at that point. He said, he was speaking to a big group of people and he said, this morning I snapped at my wife angrily. I shouldn't have done it. That was a sin. But what was underneath it? Why was I particularly snappy and angry then? And he thought about it and he said it was because I was afraid that this wasn't going to be any good. So the sin underneath the anger was actually the fear and the desire for human approval. He was very honest about that. So we need to ask ourselves, when you get angry, what's underneath that that's making it so powerful? There might be a sin underneath the sin. And that's where you need to go if you're going to deal with it. My other great teacher is a man 
former elder of this church called David, Dr. David Field. And he goes that one level deeper. He says, slow down, get deep and real. Slow down, just stop being so busy. Slow down and think about it. Think about the feelings that are going on in your heart. Think about, focus on what's happening in your body when you're so angry. Sit with it, be fully present, be honest. Now you can't do this all the time or you'd never get any work done. And I know you've got to do the dishes. And some sins we just need to, to quickly move on. But there are things, aren't there, that are so deep we really need to take our time to deal with them. And so this kind of heart work is important for us to grow as Christians into maturity. Not to produce gloomy, introspective Christians, but to pay attention to the deep internal life where the real issues lie and be transformed by the renewing of our minds. If you have been betrayed intimately, if you've been deeply wronged, if there has been justice done against you, then you will feel it at the core of your being and in some ways there are some wounds that won't be healed until the resurrection. But that doesn't mean you can't make progress. So what we need to do is not a quick fix, is bring our sin into the Lord's presence and sit with him there. As a child sits on the dad's lap, he already knows about your sin. He knows everything. He is unshockable. Bring your sin to the Lord and sit on his lap and say, Lord, why does this make me so angry and upset? How can the fire of your holiness burn it out? How can I experience your acceptance and love in such a deep way that this no longer matters as much? How can I swim and fly in the atmosphere of your acceptance and love so that I'm set free? And you might need to do that over and over again, friends, but progress is possible because the power of the Spirit is with you. See, the way to keep this commandment is not just bad Christian try harder, but to embrace the gospel afresh. The good news, the Christian message is not do your best. The Christian message is not get religion. The Christian message is a person who loves you and came for you and gave himself for you and rose from the dead for you and lives forever to intercede for you at the Father's right hand and will return for you. And his name is Jesus. He loves you so much. He, would, he will never let you go. He cannot let you go. And realizing that at some level I'm a murderer is the first step to being set free. Because the next step is to see I'm really an enemy of God in my heart. That's where it starts. And I rage at God when I don't get my way, when things go wrong. I want God's help. But most of the time when things are going right, I'm quite happy to live without him. It's what the Bible calls sin. It ruins everything and it leaves us in great spiritual danger. So what did Jesus Christ do for God's enemies? He died for them. He poured himself out. That is what the cross of Jesus is all about. The cross was a grim torture instrument for the worst of criminals, including murderers. And on the day that Jesus was tried and sentenced to death, there was a murderer, an actual murderer, on death row waiting his penalty. His name was Barabbas. And here's an interesting thing. The name Barabbas means son of the father. He was due to die that, that day and the crowd 
baying for Jesus' blood, asked the king to set Barabbas free and Jesus take his place. And the king accepted it. And Jesus literally took the place of a murderer. He suffered and died while Barabbas walked free and breathed the clean air. Now that was one man. But you know that's a picture of what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross on an infinite scale. As we come to the table today, we're not coming to earn our forgiveness. We're coming to accept it. Just as you are handed a cup and you are handed the bread and all you do this morning is receive. It's a picture of what we're doing here spiritually. We're receiving the grace of the author of life who had his life snuffed out so that we could be given new life. And the more you know him, the more you will grasp the deep value of human beings. He died for them. And the more you know him, the more you can live a life where others are given the value that they deserve. Let's have a moment of silence before we sing.